0: Who in here remembers the story of Jesus cleansing the temple? You know, I always thought it was funny when people say, well, what would Jesus do? And then you go to the cleansing of the temple. It's like, well, making a braid and beating people with it is not out of the question. Jesus did that. But why did he do it? You know, was it just a moment of just losing his temper? You know, he goes in and what does he see? He looks in the temple and... He sees money changers changing money. He, there, there are literal farm animals and stuff going on. And, and he just drives them all out. And it says, zeal for my house will consume me. That's the words that were written in Scripture's prophecy. And he says, stop making my father's house a market. And he says, you, it's supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, but you've turned it into a den of robbers. And it's that house of prayer for all nations that a lot of times gets overlooked in that story. Because what you had, of course, in the temple were kind of these concentric areas. And the outer court was the court where the Gentiles would go to worship. So how would you like, as as a Gentile, to go in to worship God? This is your place. This is your prescribed area. And the only part of the temple you can enter... And there's farm animals all around you and people changing money and a market and all of this stuff going on right there where you're trying to worship God. You know, that's what upset Jesus. Is they were disrespecting the people of God that weren't like them in that moment. The Gentiles weren't able to worship. And in fact, the the temple was so large that a lot of times people... (laughs) Would, they didn't want to walk around the temple, so they just cut through and walked through the, uh, uh, the, the court of the Gentiles, bringing their herds and everything else, and they just walk them right on through. So just imagine us having church, and these doors right here are just to go through for the entire city. You know, it's just let's just walk through, we'll bring our dogs, we'll bring everything, and it just keeps happening. How many of you would finally be like, you know what, I'm out? I'm not going anymore. Why? Because it affects us. The things out there, the things around us, all of that, it affects our ability to worship God. And so this week, in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 7, 1, Paul talks about how we need to cleanse our own temple, cleanse the temple of our lives, of who we are. Because all of us, I guarantee at different times, have overestimated our own ability to withstand the world. How, who, who in here, I mean, you don't, we don't need specific confession, but you thought, oh, I can handle it. And then you, you couldn't handle it. And you find out you really can't. And you have to admit to yourself, maybe I'm weaker than I think. Maybe I'm more easily influenced than I think. I have to make some changes in my life. Well, that's exactly what Paul is talking about in this section. And Paul really starts to take a turn in in the rest of this letter into very specific instructions now. He's defended himself. He's kind of laid the philosophy uh, of who he is and what it means to be a Christian. He's kind of done the philosophical side of things. Now he's into the application. And so the tone of this letter is very much going to change. Because he starts to become very direct with what he's telling them to do. Now, these aren't suggestions. These are the outflow of everything that he's been talking about up to this point. These are the logical outflows. If this stuff is going to be true in our lives, and it is true, then these things should happen. This is how we make sure we stay focused in the right place. So look with me in 2 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 14. And it says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So Paul puts a lot out there right there, but it's very specific. But one of the things that we've got to understand in order to really apply this to our lives is that we are created by God for God. If we are going to look at who we are, what is our purpose Where do we find true fulfillment? All of this kind of thing. If we're going to experience the life that God wants us to have, that God created us to have, we have to make sure we're living the right way. And when I say the right way, this isn't a legalistic checklist of, oh, well, that's wrong, avoid it, this is good, do that. No, I'm saying if God has created us for himself, then he is the author of life And if our lives are out of step with Him, then there is no way that our lives could ever be what God intended them to be unless we realign with Him. If He is the source of life, then everything in our life that is out of step with Him is something that is taking life from us or preventing us from stepping into life because we were created by God for God. Our highest calling, our ultimate purpose in life is to glorify him. Now, there is nothing else in this world with that calling. And one of the things that that our enemy, one of the things our world wants us to believe about ourselves that is not true is that we are just simply another part of the animal kingdom. That all of these natural processes that take place are no different in us than, than are in, say, your dog. That we're just the human animal and that we are all just here by random acts of chance, evolved, and all of this. Look, mankind, humanity, man and woman was created specially in the image of God. And there is nothing else in all of Scripture that can claim that. We are different. In fact, listen to this in Genesis 1, and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, there are a couple of things I want you to really notice in this. One, we are created in God's image. That means inherent worth. That means inherent value. The value of human life is found in that we are created in God's image. But what else does he say about us? It says he created us to have dominion over every other life form on earth. Now, what does that mean? That means you are created higher. Your life is worth more than the animal kingdom. You are not just a part of the animal world. You are not just a result of random chance. You are created by God for God with an upward calling to glorify him and with a call call to rule over the things of this world. So we're kind of in this in-between place. We're lower than God, obviously, called to glorify and serve him, but through serving him, exercise dominion over the earth, over things here, which means we are the highest life form on the earth in this world. When we forget that, we lose our sense of purpose. When we forget that, we lose our sense of value. And, and what Paul tells us in Romans is that when we take our eyes off of God and we stop worshiping and serving him, what do we do? We make idols based on the likeness of things in this world. And instead of worshiping the creator, we start to worship the creation, which is below us. Think about that. To worship an idol that is made in the likeness of something we have created, which that's all we can do. We cannot make an idol that is above ourselves, okay, if idols come from our mind and our heart and come from what we see, then that means we are worshiping something literally below us. And we become like what we worship. Which means when we aren't worshiping God and we are worshiping something of this world, we become less. We make ourselves less than what God created us to be. So, think about that. If God created us to be here and we worship something in this world, we lower the bar of who we are to something far below what God ever intended. We are created by God for God. And, and so, we all have, many of you have heard it in, in different ways, and so we can call it, you know, the God shaped hole in our lives, okay? We we all have this God-shaped hole, this God-purpose, this God-calling, this God-mission, this standard that God has called all of us to. Whatever you want to call it, you were created to glorify God in your life. Your life is meant to point upwards, not downwards. Now, we are to exercise dominion over the earth, but for the glory of God. And so, apart from that, anything that we serve that does not ultimately lead us back to God is living a life beneath what God intended. Now hear that, because that's what the enemy wants to happen to us. He wants us living a life beneath what he has for us. That's what the enemy wants. God wants us to glorify him and find ourselves in him and thus experience what true humanity is about. And we can only glorify God by obeying God. And we can only obey God because of our sinful nature, because of the brokenness of this world. We can only obey God by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that means our lives must be lived in submission to and obedience to the call of the Spirit in our lives, which is lined out in Scripture. The truth is given to us in Scripture. The the Spirit teaches us. He opens our eyes and our minds to it. And then he enables us to obey God so that our lives have the calling and the purpose that God intended. And the Holy Spirit enables this. This is, this is one of the great things. This is one of the great promises that, that Jesus gave in Acts 1, 8, and 9. It says, but you will receive power. Now, he's talking to the disciples before, this is before the day of Pentecost, and he's telling them what's going to happen. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. So he tells them, you're going to have power. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm not going to leave you powerless in this world. I will give you what you need in order to fulfill your calling and your purpose in this world. Peter tells us in his letter that he has given us everything necessary for life and godliness. So we are without excuse Because he has given us of his spirit. And the power of the spirit in our is the power to do what could not have been done before we were saved. And what does it lead to? It leads to us witnessing to Jesus. It leads to us witnessing to him. Now, I'm not saying that you have to become a professional evangelist. What I'm saying is that your life will have that upward bent to it. It will have that upward trajectory that when people look at your life and they look at you, they're going to see the work of the Spirit and the fingerprints of God in your life. And it will be a witness to the gospel. It will be a witness to God. You will be witnessing to God simply by the way you live, the way you talk, the, the, the way your life presents itself to the world around you. Why? Because he said, You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. And and so, every aspect of our lives, what the Spirit is going to do through the course of our lifetime, it doesn't happen all at once, but through the course of our lifetime, he brings every aspect of our lives into agreement with the character of God. That's what the power of the Holy Spirit is it is in sanctification. And sanctification is that process whereby God makes us holy. Okay, in the Greek language, there's the word for holy. The word for sanctification is the verb form of that word holy. We don't have that word in English, so we had to create an entirely new word. But in the Greek, there's literally holy. And then in the Greek, for the word sanctification, it's literally to holinize. Okay, To make you holy, the process of you becoming more and more and more set apart for the things of God. That is the holiness that we are to pursue. So, we are to order our lives around the righteousness of God, and it is only living a life of godliness that is the true meaning of humanity. To be human is to glorify God. Not to try to be God like Adam and Eve did, And not to hand over our dignity and standing by worshiping idols and lowering ourselves, but claiming that spot that God made for us in which we glorify him when an upward calling and have dominion over the things below us. It's an amazing thing that God did in creating us. He placed eternity in our hearts, but made us flesh and bone. And it's like humanity, it's like he, he took the physical and the eternal and he slammed them together in a special creation called you. And it all works together. And so how we live matters. How we live matters. And so what we have to then ask ourselves is if we are created by God for god how do we order our lives so that we get the most out of everything god wants for us the most god we can exercise the most dominion we can not again in power hungry lost you know i've got to exert myself but literally to be the person god created you to be and the first thing we have to ask is do we have appropriate relationships in our lives because this is where Paul's instructions become extremely important. What does he say? In 6.14, he says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Now, he says something important there. He says, don't be unequally yoked. He doesn't say avoid every bit of the world and everything that disagrees with God like the plague because if you talk to a person who's an unbeliever, their sin might rub off on you like a disease, so avoid it as much as possible. That's not what he said. What does he say? Do not be what? Unequally yoked. Now, what is a yoke? Of course, in, in Paul's day, in Jesus' day, a yoke was something that they would carry uh, water or, or different things, and they would put this thing over their neck and they would hang the burdens that they were to carry on each side. Now, how many of you have ever done this and you, you carry it along? What do you want more than anything else for that yoke to be? Balanced. <laughs> because to try to carry it when it's unbalanced is is, is almost impossible. Now, he says, don't let it be unequally yoked with what? Unbelievers. So he's saying there's a balance to a Christian's life that must be attained, and it's not a one-to-one balance. It is, it is make sure your life has the things of God in it and that it is defined by the things of God so that when you encounter unbelievers, when you engage the lost world, it doesn't get out of balance, and they pull you down. Now, how many of you remember when you were younger, your parents talking to me, you know, make sure you choose the right friends. You know, show me your friends, I'll show you your future. You know, how many, how many of y'all heard that? How many teenagers in here are like, please stop right now? I've heard this, but you know what? There is some truth to it, uh, okay? Let's imagine for just a second, Peyton, come here, you're going to help me out. Stand up. Okay. He doesn't know I'm doing this, so he's like, why? You're freaking me out. So stand up. I'm on this stage. If Payton wants to pull me down, I'm going to have to be pretty strong to pull him up to me, right? I mean, I, maybe I could. I don't know. It would be a struggle right now. Yeah. We'd have to fight. Why? Because he would have gravity on his side. Like, that would all be about my own strength and ability to just heave ho and pull him up here. He's probably going to win. Because all he's got to do is what? Just give in. Just go limp. Fall on the ground. But what if, Holden, you, you can sit down. But, but, but hold, you can stay there. I'm just saying. But what if Holden were to come up here and grab hold of me and hold on to me while I pulled on him? He's going to have a much harder time pulling me down, isn't he? Now, what if we had a whole group? You can sit down. What if we had a whole group of people up here holding on to each other and then the people down here are like, hey, we're going to try to pull you up to us. No, we're going to try to pull you down, but we're all supporting one another, helping each other in the process. It's, we're not going to fall. We may struggle, but you see, that's what fellowship is about, is we help each other unfortunately, too many times in legalistic churches, in legalistic Christianity, we we stand there and we wait. And we're like, look at them. They're trying to do that alone. I don't think they're strong enough. And instead of going over and saying, hey, brother, sister, let me help. Let me hold on. Let Let me be with you in this. We sit there and point fingers. And then when they fall, we say, I can't believe you did that. When you know what? That's the person that was engaging the lost world. What we are supposed to be is do not be unequally yoked. He doesn't say avoid the world at all costs and hole up and never talk to them and, and be afraid of the world. He just says don't be unequally yoked. Make sure that what's pulling you down is not outnumbering that which is trying to pull you up. Friends, that is what the body of Christ is about. That's what fellowship is about. Okay, when, when when me as a pastor say, look, come to church, be in church, be here, build relationships in the church, it's not just because I want to be able to say, look how big our church is. I want you supporting each other. We need each other. Because None of us is strong enough to withstand the onslaught of the world alone. Okay, none of us. We will fall. It will get a hold of us and it will pull us down. And it's, look, we're just, that's who we are. We're not strong enough. And so anytime, anytime Satan starts to get in your head and say, oh, you're strong enough. Understand at that very moment, you're not. Just go ahead and admit, I mean, just lock that in, that anytime you start thinking, oh, I can handle it, just know you're probably lying to yourself. Satan's lying to you, the world's lying to you. Something's out of place because we're not strong enough. And that's not a condemnation. God didn't make you to be strong enough, okay? There was one man who was strong enough, and that was Jesus Christ, and his purpose was to be strong enough. And go give his life on the cross because none of us would ever be strong enough. The cross, the the whole point of the cross is saying, I know you're not strong enough. You don't have to be strong enough. I'll give you my spirit. You will be a part of the body of Christ. I'll give you my word. I mean, think about all that he has given us to say you need every bit of this so that you can stand. You need the Holy Spirit. You need the scriptures. You need the fellowship of the body. You need to sing praises. You need Bible study. You need a sense of mission in this dark world so it doesn't pull you down so that you know when you go out into darkness, you represent Christ and you are an ambassador for him and you have a job to do. We need all of that. And so Paul says don't be unequally yoked. And the the real question here then is he has to kind of build the case for us but i'm not sure he really did needed to because i think we get it but listen to all he says in 2 corinthians 14 through 16 he says for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness now what's the answer to all of these questions none there is no relationship for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness none or what fellowship has light with darkness none what accord has christ with belial belial was the name of a demon." None. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? None. You don't share your eternal inheritance with an unbeliever. That's yours. God gave it to you. He gave it to the church. And then verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? So I want you to ask yourself this question, where is my fellowship? Where do I get the most fellowship? You see, this isn't an either-or situation. This is what, it, what gets the best of me, what gets the most, what influences me the most. Do the things of God influence you more or do the things of the world influence you more? And you might look at me and say, well, it depends on the day of the week. And that's fair. How many of us have had a time where we just spent the whole day consuming the world, not not in sinful rebellion, but just consuming the world, and, man, we're worn out by the end of the day. And we kind of lose hope, and and we get down, and we just think, man, this world is so messed up, and we we just start to lose hope, and we're depressed and, and all of that. And then we spend time with God, and it's like, hey, wait a minute. God's still on His throne. You see, what influences us the most And look, our enemy is sneaky. He knows how to distract us. He knows our weaknesses. He knows how to pull us away from the things of God. And that's why he says, we have to do this ourselves. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Make sure your life is consuming more of the things of God than it is of the world. And that is a choice each of us has to make regularly. And again, this isn't a matter of condemnation or, or pass fail. God isn't up there like, oh, you consume more of me today. Okay, that's your gold star. That's your check mark. Good job. No, it's where are you getting your life? Where is your hope? Where is, is your satisfaction in, in this world? You know, I've, I've heard it said. Spend your time with five other people who are intelligent and you'll become the sixth. You know, spend time with five millionaires and in time you'll likely become the sixth. Why? Because you're going to learn. You're going to be influenced. But again, spend most of your time with five people who don't love God, who think that darkness is acceptable and live in sin, and give it enough time what's going to happen you'll start to excuse that sin. You'll start to accept it. You'll start to say, it's not that bad. Oh, I can handle it. I'm okay. Listen, anytime we start to just say, I'm okay, and we don't see the, Satan's got us. And it may just be to create a seed of doubt in our mind, okay? It doesn't mean you're going to go, you know, crazy and, 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 you know, have a weekend bender or something. It may just be that he gets you depressed and he robs your joy and you live in that place for a year. And you lose the joy of the Lord. And you know what? That's enough, right? That's a, that's a victory for Satan. Because you live in that place long enough, you're, you're going to start to wonder, well, is, is it worth it? I don't want to go to church. I don't want to be around people. You See, that's what happens. And, and so Paul is not telling us to hate anyone or, or see people as the enemy. He's not doing that at all. He's not teaching any kind of superiority here. He's talking about influence. And understand, none of us is above being influenced in this world. And he's saying you make sure that that influence that is chief in your life is drawing you to God, is pointing you to God. Can we have friends who are unbelievers? Absolutely. I hope you do. Because you need, the gospel has to be proclaimed. We have to be salt and, and light in this world. We have to be able to share it. And if we, we separate ourselves completely, we can't ever share the gospel with people. But if your only friends are outside the church, you're missing out on one of the greatest blessings that God has, and that is the fellowship of the believers. Because a true friend in this world will want to draw you closer to God, not away from him. And at this point, a lot of times people are like, okay, teenagers listen to this. Hey, adults listen to this. A true friend is concerned about your spiritual well-being and wants you walking with God. And they'll pray with you and they will encourage you and they will help you to see the path and the blessings of God in your life. That's what true friendship is. Is somebody who will walk with God with you and love you in the process. This and this is not the first time Paul has had to deal with this with the Corinthians. You see, Corinth was a uh, shall we say, a, a very social and very cultural place. A lot of darkness was in that city. And so in 1 Corinthians 15:33. Paul says this. He says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. And he just threw it out there for him. And he's like, be careful who you hang around. Be careful the influences you allow into your life. Because you allow it in long enough, you'll accept it. You'll say it's okay. When God's word clearly has lines that we are not to cross. And so Corinth was very social, was a very active place culturally. And listen, not all culture is good, amen? Not all culture is bad. It's up to us to discern based on the Holy Spirit, based upon the Word of God, that culture which we believe is is okay to engage in. I kind of think there are three things that we can do with culture. We can enjoy it, we can redeem it, or reject it. There are things in this world we can simply enjoy for what it is. Given its proper place, look, anything can be taken out of place. But there are things that can be enjoyed. They just simply are enjoyed. It's a part of the culture. It's neither good nor bad. It's just something that can be enjoyed. Christians are free to enjoy it. There's nothing wrong at all. Then there are those things to be redeemed. And when I say redeemed, that... It could go either way, but if Christians are involved in it and they, they lift the gaze upward rather than down, then it's something that can glorify God and be enjoyed at the same time. But it's up to us to be salt and light within that. I think art is one of those things. Some of the greatest works of art our world has ever seen are based on what? God's Word. It's, it's, it's God you know reflecting God's holiness and, and pulling people's gazes upward. But we also see stuff called art that all it does is pull people down. And that's its intent, is to keep people from looking at God and to get people to be animalistic. So there are things to be redeemed. And then there are parts of our culture that simply are to be rejected. Christians are to have nothing to do with it. And you know what? That's when we're going to seem weird to the world. Because to the world, they're going to say, well, this is normal. And we're going to say, no, according to God's word, this is sin. And I won't be a part of it. There are things to be enjoyed, redeemed, and rejected. That's the Christian's place within society. And so, within that, we have to have an honest assessment of how things in this world affect us. And we start by understanding we are more susceptible to being influenced than we realize. All of us. How many of you have ever hung around somebody long enough you started talking like them? And you didn't notice it till you got around somebody else and they're like, why are you talking like that? Oh, I see you've been hanging around so-and-so again. It, you know, it's, it, it's funny. We, uh, we grew up in Texas, uh, you know, family, and, and then we moved to Washington and so the accents are very different. And so every time our family would go back to Texas, when we'd get back to Washington, everybody's like, you've been in Texas, haven't you? Because especially our kids, it would, it, it would just turn on. You know, that West Texas draw would just start to come out. You know, I mean, that's just the way it was. Well, it's because of the influences around. It just seemed normal. This is it. And we picked things up. And we are all more susceptible than we realize. And so, what is it that God calls us to do? He says, bring holiness to completion. Bring holiness to completion. This is where we cooperate with grace. This is where we work and and put in the effort into what God wants us to do. And it starts with God's promises and grace towards us. Listen again, 2 Corinthians 6, 16 through 18. Notice how Paul, once again, goes straight back to the gospel of jesus christ because that is always our starting point it says for we are the temple of the living god as god said i will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and i will be their god and they shall be my people therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them says the lord and touch no unclean thing then i will welcome you and i will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me says the lord almighty These are promises. He says, look, I'm going to be with you. My promise is that I'm going to be with you. And it starts with God's promises, but it ends with our obedience. Chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Notice this starts with what God has done for us. What has God done for us? He gave his son, Jesus, on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. He made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That is what God has done for us. Amen? Not counting our sins against us. We are forgiven. That is the starting point. Don't forget that. That's the starting point. And the reason that's so important is because if we forget that's the starting point, we run straight to legalism in this. And we think our actions are earning us something with God, and they're not. Why? Because there's nothing left to be earned. He's given us all of it. So we start with what God has done for us. And when we see what God has done for us, then we are motivated to glorify him and fulfill our calling as people created in God's image. We seek to fulfill that upward calling rather than looking downward. We look up. And so what does he call us to do? Since we have these promises. You see, it's an outflow. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves now how many times in life do we god change me 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 god i'd make me different god make me different and he's like I already did cleanse yourself now make the change now cleanse your temple see, this is an amazing thing. Because we have these promises of God, because God has already forgiven us, because He's given us of His Spirit, because He's given us His Word, because He's given us His body, and we have fellowship with the saints, He says there's now no excuse that we won't cleanse ourselves of the things that defile. So maybe we keep asking God to remove things from our life, and He's like, you do it! Remove it. I've given you everything you need to do it. Your step of obedience is now actually doing it. Take the step. And remove it from your own life. Why? Because he's already broken the power of sin. He now calls us to break the practice of sin. And there is a difference. The power of sin no longer owns us. The power of sin no longer defines us. The power of God does. But it's up to us to break the practice of sin in our lives. And that's why Paul says, cleanse ourselves. that's, That's where it gets real, doesn't it? It gets hard. We have a responsibility now. To holy living, to righteous living, to cleanse ourselves. And it says what? Of everything. Of every defilement of body and spirit. So he's kind of thrown a blanket statement out here of like anything in your life, whether physical or spiritual, whatever, maybe it's seen or unseen, it doesn't matter. Clean it up. And how radical do we get with this? Well, I don't know. How radical did Jesus get when he cleansed the temple? I'm serious. How radical did he get? He was cleaning house, right? He didn't go in. It's like, hey, guys, if y'all could, you know, if y'all could wrap this up, you know, all these Gentiles want to pray and you're kind of so, you know, I don't want to offend you, but if you could, if you could just wrap this up really fast and pack it all up and get it out, that'd be great. What did he do? he made a whip (laughs) and he started beating people saying get out and he's turning over the tables and he's running everybody out of there because he's furious now here's the the translation it's time for christians to start getting furious about some of the stuff in our lives and it's time for us to clean house is this acceptable to God? Yes or no? You've got to ask yourself. You have to look at it. Nobody else. He says cleanse ourselves. He doesn't say go look legalistically and tell everybody else what's wrong with their lives. He says you look at yourself and cleanse yourself of every defilement, both body and spirit. Very quickly, I was planning, but I'm, I'm out of time, but in... In 2 Kings 22 and 23, we read a story about King Josiah. The things of God had been completely forgotten. He came to the throne at age 8. And at age uh, 26, he started remodeling and renovating, cleaning out the temple because it had fallen into disrepair. And while they're cleaning out the temple, they come across the word of God. They come across the scroll of the law, which has been forgotten for a generation now. Completely forgotten. Completely forgotten. And they start reading the scroll again and they take it to King Josiah and he reads it and he's convicted and he says, we've sinned, we have forgot. And, and he orders everything in the land to be brought back to God and he reforms the nation in an incredible way. And in fact, he reforms so much and he turns to God with such passion that the Bible says this about him. It says before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul, and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. That includes King David. No king like him before or after. You see, when we get convicted and we get passionate about restoring the things of God in our lives and and cleaning out everything that defiles and being on fire for God, there is no limit to what God can do. But if we refuse to cleanse ourselves, God's not going to do it for us. He's already done what he needs to do. He's given us everything. He gave his son. He gave his spirit. He gave his word. He gave his body. He has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Are we walking in it? Are we availing ourselves of everything that God has given us to walk with him? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for today. And God, I pray, God, that you would just help us this week. God, to to really take stock of our lives. To see what is and is not bringing us closer to you, God. Maybe there are those things we can enjoy and we can continue to enjoy. Maybe there are things in our lives we need to redeem. And God, maybe there are things we need to just reject. God, give us the clarity and wisdom to know where those things are, God, the courage to take the action that needs taken. God, give us clarity of thought. Help us to see and know what it is you want us to do, God, so that we will glorify you, that we will fulfill our calling as those created in your image. Father, we're not earning anything with you. We're doing this out of gratitude because of what you have given to us. Help us to walk by your power, to walk by faith and not by sight. God, it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.